George Barna says, Ours is not the business of organized religion or Bible teaching. If we dedicate ourselves to such a business, we will be left by the wayside as the culture moves forward. Jesus Christ, he says, was a marketing specialist. He knew his product and his market. Unfortunately, again, many of our missions organizations, evangelism teams, in many of our denominations, that's the very paradigm that they use. They they talk about Jesus as not only a motivator, but but a chief strategist, and and he knew his market. You know, and and boy, that's, they've been able to homogenize that to the point where people actually believe that he was. On this edition of the White Horse Inn, we're discussing consumerism and market values in the church, recorded before a live audience in Oceanside, California. Five centuries ago, in taverns and public houses across Europe, the masses would gather for discussion and debate over the latest ideas sweeping the land. From one such meeting place, a small Cambridge inn called the White Horse, the Reformation came to the English-speaking world. Carrying on the tradition, welcome to the White Horse Inn. Thanks a lot and welcome to another edition of the White Horse Inn. When the going gets tough, the tough go shopping. There's a new Time article that uh, just appeared showing that we're a nation of religious consumers. We consume everything, including God, apparently. In the popular movie Risky Business years ago, there's a scene in which Joel, played by Tom Cruise, and some of his friends are eating at the corner hamburger stand. Joel, feeling the pressures of materialism all around him, asks, is all everybody wants to do is make money? His friends... Stunned by what they perceive as a stupid question, say in chorus, Yes! What about you, Joel? There's a pause in which one's left wondering how Joel will answer, and then he responds, I want to serve my fellow man. Immediately aware of how out of step his answer is, Joel grins, betraying the seriousness of his answer, and everyone laughs at ease having gotten the joke. Later in the movie, Joel meets a prostitute to whom he's attracted. He's becoming more in step with things and realizes the virtues he sees in the prostitute. No guilt, he says, no doubts, no fear, just the shameless pursuit of immediate material gratification. What a capitalist. By the end of the movie, Joel has built an empire of ill repute only to have it topple. And he shows us how he handled the pressure when he says, My name is Joel Goodson. I deal in human fulfillment. I grossed over $8,000 in one night. Time of your life, huh, kid? Seems like everything is for sale in America. Everything seems to be dealing in human fulfillment, selling identities, selling lives that we'd like to have. Historian Jackson Lears reports that, quote, to thrive and spread... A consumer culture required more than a national apparatus of marketing and distribution. It also needed a favorable moral climate. It seems that evangelicalism not only failed to discourage the exploitation of God and man, but actually advanced it, exchanging the creator-creature relationship for that of a producer-consumer relationship. 
The late 19th century evangelist D.L. Moody, for example, was a salesman prior to his conversion, and he was a good one. He was to take his sales approach to his evangelistic enterprise, insisting that he was still a salesman as an evangelist. He just switched products, he said. In fact, according to William McLaughlin, a historian, Charles Finney made revivalism a profession, but D.L. Moody made it big business. Later, after the turn of the century, Billy Sunday would turn the platform into a stage and boast that, quote, I am the most efficient evangelist. I guarantee results at $2 per soul. Everything, it seems, can be measured and even measured in monetary terms when God becomes a producer and we become consumers. In this edition of the White Horse Inn, we're talking about God for sale, consumerism in the church. And to talk about this important topic, we have uh, three of our usual uh, cast of characters here. Dr. Rod Rosenblatt, a Lutheran minister, professor at Concordia University in Irvine. The Reverend Ken Jones is pastor of Greater Union Baptist Church in Compton, California. And sitting in for Kim Riddlebarger tonight is Scott Clark, professor of historical theology and systematic theology at Westminster Seminary, California. It's a pleasure to have you guys with us, and uh, especially you, Scott, sitting in for Kim tonight. It's good to be here. You know, outside of uh, the pastor's office of a large megachurch pastor, there is a famous uh, poster, and he says every time he goes into his office, he looks at that poster to remind him of what it's all about. And the question that that poster asks is, what is your business and who is your customer? Hmm. Is there a growing sense that everything is for sale, everything can be measured, and the church deals in human fulfillment? Well, certainly uh, someone like George Barna isn't wasting time on his books as he takes a look at the sociological picture you get from American Protestantism. That's not wasted effort. He's serious about what he does, and it lends itself to that. Um, so it's hard to be too rough on him because he's, he's uh, making clear what we many of us realize is going on. Rod refers there to George Barna, who is a consultant not only for the Disney Corporation and a number of uh, large evangelical organizations, but for a number of denominations as well. And uh, one of the things that, that Barna says is uh, we have to ask ourselves what business are we in? And he says it's not preaching or teaching, but the business of life transformation. How do we, how do we respond to that? Well, we respond by fundamentally questioning the premise that, first of all, that the church is in a business. Uh, it, it, I know it's un-American and sort of heresy against the culture, but I think that's the fundamental problem here is uh, a confusion of the faith and the culture. And I was glad that you, you uh, referred to uh, McLaughlin and, and I've been reading Nathan Hatch, uh, reading and rereading, and, and he makes a lot of the same points uh, from 1789 until 1820. Uh, our culture, our, this country went through a radical transformation of, of uh, democratization. And, and he says, you know, in the early 19th century, uh, religion in America became a, quote, mass enterprise. And I, th I was struck by that because that's the language of business. And so I think a lot of this 
is really the function of, of democratization. Uh, it, it's, what, it's the way you relate to people in this culture. Well, I think there's, there's a couple underlying um, presuppositions uh, uh, as it relates to this, this problem of consumerism or marketing of the church. Um, one is we, we do, as, as you're talking about, um, Scott, it's, it's a reflection of the larger culture. We're, we're, we're living in a, in a consumeristic culture where everything is geared towards the consumer. Uh, that carries over to the church at, at a number of levels. On top of it, you have capitalism. Mm -hmm. uh, so this exactly. is a capitalistic culture, and it's, and it's hard to remove all of that from the church. And then on top of it, there's a, there's a hidden seek, or not a sin, but it is a sin, that, that drives much of, our, uh, goes what, much of what goes on in the church uh, today, and that is competition, the spirit of competition. Exactly. The presence of so many churches, not just outside of the denomination, but the presence of so many churches in, in, a, ver in, a, in a given community demands that you do something to justify your local existence. So given the, the consumerism of, and, and capitalism of the culture, with this unspoken competition with the church, which we use, we, we hide it with the language of evangelism, but given that, that spirit of competition, we now have to justify our existence to our own market or to, to get that share of the market. He even, Hatch actually speaks of, uh, of, uh, of an explosion of denominations, an explosion in the number of pastors early in the 19th century, which caused, he, uh, he says, them to compete for adherence, which is a bizarre way of thinking about the church. I mean, yes. sure it is. I mean, look at the book of Acts. Do you, do you see uh, niche marketing? Do you see the apostles competing uh, for territory? Uh, do you, I mean, but but let's, t let's put it in, in, in denominational terms. You look at, at uh, the, the missions of, of, uh, or evangelism departments of a lot of our denominations, and you, if you plan a church, they give it, and, and I've seen this with, with churches where, where they've given support for a certain period of time, and if you don't get X amount of families in X amount of time, oh, then it's deemed not worthy, and, and they pull the support on it. Well, I mean, isn't that being driven by the, the spirit of the age? And, but see, that, that sort of thing doesn't get talked about. It's easy to, to talk about the crass consumerism that's associated with evangelism, but if you take, if you take the whole idea of church planting and the model that's used by many of our even reformed denominations... Sure it follows that same pattern. Well, you've, you've got a year and a half to get, even though you've gotten five new families, you've got a year and a half to get five more families or else we pull the plug. And it's, it's sheep shifting. It's interesting, D.L. Moody, uh, to whom I referred earlier, the 19th century, late 19th century evangelist, uh, said that he really just changed products. He didn't change his profession, he just changed products. And uh, he said, I guarantee you, if you find a man who has surrendered his life to Christ, you will find a successful man. And here you began to see this, a soft version of the prosperity gospel, really. And no wonder the people who were now supporting the revivals of D.L. Moody and others, but especially D.L. Moody, were names we would all recognize from that era. Wanamaker, Dodge. Barnum, 
who built the tents and a lot of, <laughs> constructed a lot of the buildings for these uh, revivals, and Andrew Carnegie, mm. who said the business of America is business. Which is, which is fair enough. I mean, that's true, and that's fine, so long as we're not thinking about the gospel. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the, the tragedy isn't that people are competing for customers and, and selling things and buying things. I mean, I don't want to live in a place, if I can help it, where, you know, the government's redistributing wealth. It just doesn't work very well. But, uh, but I don't see what that has to do with the gospel and, and what that has to do with the Church of Jesus Christ, what that has to do with word, sacrament, right. and discipline. Those are, those are two other things, it seems to me. It seems to me that also this would be fertile for Christian filmmakers, and it would be to portray a different guy, to portray somebody where the congregation isn't too large, probably kind of poor, and he's faithfully executing what he's called to do. Uh, I think that has all sorts of film possibilities, and it would be totally countercultural. And there's no Very, market for it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's direct video. <laughs> I mean, or yeah. DVD. Now. We would have plenty of ministers in our communion <laughs> yeah, exactly. who could play the role. Yeah, the, I think well, <laughs> we both could say that. But but in an, in an age like ours, that's a compliment. Right. George Barna uh, says ours is not the business of organized religion, corporate worship or Bible teaching. If we dedicate ourselves to such a business, we will be left by the wayside as the culture moves forward. Jesus Christ, he says, was a marketing specialist. He knew his product and his market. What, how yeah. do you contrast that with the Great Commission? No, I, I like to contrast it with John 6. Yeah, great <laughs> marketing strategy. Uh, yeah, Bob get, Godfrey calls you, it you, Jesus church shrinkage yeah, you, seminar. You, you get thousands of people finally yeah. deciding to follow yeah. you and listen. Yeah. And then what do you do? You drive them away. In fact, Peter got so upset about it, he says, look, you know, dude, you're killing us here. You know, you, you, everybody's leaving. You, you know, we, we've been working so hard. So it's, it's just hard to follow that kind of strategy. Um, or to use it, uh, to use that, that sort of language uh, as it relates to the, the earthly ministry of Jesus. But un unfortunately, you mentioned in contrast to the Great Commission, unfortunately, again, many of our church planting, missions organizations, evangelism teams, in many of our denominations, that's the very paradigm it that is. they use. It is. They, they talk mm -hmm. about Jesus as not only a motivator, but, but a chief strategist. And, and he knew his market. You know, and, and boy, that's, they, they've been able to, um, to homogenize that to the point where people actually believe that he was. Yeah. yeah. I mean, right down to individual or, or, uh, lay witness. You know, one of the most widespread uh, programs for lay witness in North America is promulgated by a, a now we trust glorified reformed minister in which he trained people to knock on the door and uh, to a you know, ask some interesting and important questions, but then to follow pretty much, pretty rigorously, uh, a, a formula which was uh, I in which you were expected to close the deal yep. uh, so that yeah. you essentially have individualized uh, a lay revival and an, and an individualized anxious bench or altar call. Yeah. So if Jesus and the apostles didn't see people as consumers, what did, what did they see them as? Well, there's a reason that there are images like shepherd sheep. Mm. Uh, the images in the Bible for uh, church 
are not the ones that uh, the marketers would have chosen. And I think that's, in our day, significant. Well, kingdom. I mean, how democratic, how populist, how market-driven is the whole metaphor of a, or an image of a kingdom and a king and subjects? That's, you know, I'm well, sorry, actually, that'll never sell. The disciples prior to the day of Pentecost, they thought the idea of kingdom was pretty good. In fact, it was so good to them, they wanted chief seats in the yes, kingdom. Sure. <laughs> but yeah. it was a, a kingdom of a different sort. Yeah. Last question to Jesus before the ascension. Lord, yeah. now will you restore the kingdom? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah right. So, yeah. <laughs> well, and you know, all of these examples of... Uh, Jesus and the apostles talking about where we are. You know, you hear all this language today about you got to speak to people where they are. Jesus and the Usually apostles. You are at. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's always a grammar lesson with Rod. <laughs> they knew exactly where they were at. They told them where they were at. They didn't want to believe that that was where they were at. How's that? Are you happy yeah, now? There you go. <laughs> said, you're dead in trespasses and sins. That's yeah. where you're at. You're in Adam. That's yeah. your location. Yeah. I know exactly where you're at. You don't think you're there, but you are. Yeah. And here's, what, here's where I am. I am yeah. the Savior. I've come to seek and to save that which was lost, not try to come to, to, to sell uh, something to people who already know what they need. Yeah. And that's the same approach that Peter has on the day of Pentecost. You know, you have, you've done this. You've killed the king of glory. But Great way to start out if you want to win. Yeah, yeah, right. right. I mean, right. You know, win friends and influence. And, and, uh, but but that, is, that is the, uh, the, the difference. They, they, were, they didn't see the potential disciples that would be made as consumers in the same way yeah. that the contemporary church leader has been told to approach potential members. Oh, they, they, yeah, absolutely. I mean, they absolutely saw it differently. I mean, Acts, the thing, my mind went to Acts uh, 8, but there was a man named Simon who had previously yeah. practiced magic in the city uh, and amazed the people of Samaria, right? They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man has the power of God, and they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. Yeah. And what did the apostle Peter say? Yeah. And you know hey, what? We could augment. We could we could do a side thing here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, this is. The, yeah. We can sell this. We can take this on late night TV. Twenty nine ninety five. Slightly higher west of the Rockies. No COD. No. He said. <laughs> he said to hell with you and your money. Yeah. Literally is what he said. You're, That's yeah. literally what it yep. says. Uh, one of the earliest uh, post apostolic church doc documents, the Didache, uh, in chapter eleven says, "Whoever says in the spirit, give me money." or something else, Kick you shall out. not listen to him. So oh, wow. evidently, these, the early Gnostics, Paul called them the super apostles, were selling their wares. Mm -hmm. They yeah. were saying, look, if you follow us, we have, the, we have the secrets to getting what you want out of life. We know the secrets of the invisible world, sort of like Pat Robertson's Secrets of the Invisible Kingdom. Uh, we, we know how to get this done, and if you'll just send us your seed gift, yeah. Yeah. we'll make sure that you, it happens for you, too. You know, Barnett's worried about us being left behind. I, that would be a good thing. Uh, we, we ought to be left behind in, mul in, in multiple ways, but um, I think about the, the Deacon persecution in, in the third century. Uh, you know, these people were covered with pitch and put on poles and set mm -hmm. on fire. Uh, and, and this actually ended up being to the benefit of the church. 
I don't, I, I honestly have no idea where it is or why it is that Barnett thinks that we have to somehow keep up with a culture. Well, but, it's, it's again the, the, the paradigm shift in terms of Christianity, uh, what the church is about, and, and the message that we, we propagate. But, you, uh, Mike, you mentioned D.L. Moody, who, was, who said that he never stopped being a salesman. The only thing that, that changed was the product. Um, there's, a, there's a misnomer among salespeople that you have to believe in your product, but you really don't. Really, if you want to be a good salesperson, you just have to believe in yourself. Yeah. And the product is, is secondary to the ability of the person to sell it. Now, I say that to say that many people probably unconsciously follow Moody's pattern or his, his, his uh, outlook on ministry. And so that's why we have the star system among the preachers. It's, you know, you look, uh, it's, what, what's the, the important thing when you look at, at the whole cavalcade of preachers that you see on, on Christian television? The one who, it doesn't matter what they're selling, it's their ability. And so that's why people, without even blinking, you can mention in the same breath a T.D. Jakes or a Creflo Dollar or Joel Osteen. Their messages are pretty much the same, but what makes them stand out is their ability to yeah. sell the, and since we are on, on radio and Christian television and everything, I can't say what they're selling, but it's not, uh, well, Paul called it dung, but they, you know, they, <laughs> it's their ability Scuba to life. sell it. It's, it's, it's their ability, and personality is associated with the ability. So that, that is what, you know, you're selling personality. You're really not selling anything of, of biblical substance. Well, and that's what B.B. Warfield said about Charles Finney. He says, really, now the, the, the preacher becomes the sacrament. Yes, yes, that is significant. He says, the, the, you can tell <clears throat> the revivalist feels himself, and he wants the, the audience to feel him as well. Yep. But God is not felt, says Warfield, in the same measure. <laughs> Excellent. Well, when, when Barna says, uh, and again, we're not, we're not questioning people's uh, interest in missions, in reaching right. people. That's not, it's, it's thinking that reaching people and missions can be accommodated to a consumerist right. paradigm. That's what we're, that we're yeah. going after. When he says ours, uh, our, uh, ours is not the business of organized religion, corporate worship, or Bible teaching. I can only think there the words in the Great Commission where Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go into all the world and preach the gospel, yeah. baptize, and teach. The exact things that Barna excludes here. He says, we're not in, in that business. And then in Acts 2, of course, mm -hmm. that's what people were doing. It says they were right. daily meeting to hear the apostles teaching, the breaking of the bread, the fellowship, and the prayers. And the prayers. He, he didn't say go into all the world and expand your market share and move product. Yeah. And, it, it, what, I mean, and the, this is the most amazing thing. And I think, frankly, what Barna is saying is very culturally insensitive and I think generationally trapped. When you walk uh, when you come into the, uh, the uh, economic commercial sphere, you know that, you know, you walk into a car lot and you, cannot, you, you can't be on a car lot more than 30 seconds before some guy comes out and introduces himself and put, you know, shakes your hand and wants to know all about you, your life, your children and so forth. Uh, and you know what he wants. He mm -hmm. wants your wallet. He wants to sell you a product. Why in the world would we want to confuse what we're doing as Christians and as churches 
and particularly as ministers, with that guy selling that car? Why would we want to enter into that kind of relationship with someone when the one thing that we can do, that the salesman can't do, uh, is to be honest, authentic, um, and, and truthful in our communication with people. That's the one thing they want from us, is to tell the truth yeah. and to show genuine love for them. And, and here this cat, Barna, is telling us, no, we have to act like salespeople. Yep. We have to lie, we have to manipulate, we have to cajole, and we have to Well, he wouldn't product. say we have to lie, but, well. but, we, <laughs> but we have to... We have to, there has to be a, a certain kind of spin here. Yes. You know, Jesus knew what the people wanted. and But this goes back to the whole point. You mentioned John 6. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he knew what the people wanted, McDonald's. And he yeah. said, yeah. you're yeah. not following me because you believe I am who I said I am. You're, believe, you're following me because you ate and had your fill. Yeah, in fact. And then he started preaching Reformation theology. John, in, 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 <laughs> <laughs> on a number of occasions throughout John's gospel, he makes mention of the fact that Jesus knew what they were thinking or he knew their hearts. And he responds in a way that was usually unexpected for them. Yeah, I think as soon as we link Jesus and product, we're already in the web. Yeah. Well, and, and the, Barna goes on to say, the product that we're selling is life transformation. Yeah. Now, see, that's what Oprah's selling. Yes. That's yeah. what Jenny Craig is selling. That's what... And so now, basically, the gospel is trivialized and accommodated to our narcissism. And it's hard to imagine Paul telling Timothy... In the last days, people will be lovers of themselves, materialistic, proud, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. So make sure that you can market well to that kind of a consumer yeah. niche. Yeah. He says, so here's what you're to do. Keep your head down, preach the word when it's popular and when it's not popular. Yep. Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. A real evangelist, a real uh, missionary, is going to keep his head down, head down, in and, the scriptures, and read the scriptures, know the scriptures, and proclaim the scriptures. And uh, uh, churches baptizing, teaching, administering communion—that is the mission of our, the church. Our whole message is a message, really, of suffering and death. It really is. We we follow a, a, a rabbi who suffered his whole life and said, and, you will too. And said they'll do to you exactly. what they've done to me. Paul says we are filling up his sufferings. What they can't do to him because he's ascended, they do to us. And what did Jesus tell us? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who, who mourn, for they shall be comforted. There's nothing in here about uh, self-satisfaction, uh, prosperity, or, or uh, self-esteem, or, or any of that. It... The very act of baptism is, an in our theology, and I think in yours as well, Rod, is, is an, an identification with the death of Jesus. Right, right. Come and die. Yeah. 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 But be buried with him. Yeah. Your that, sin will be put in the tomb. Part of the complex, I think, of the contemporary, uh, the, the complex of the, of the contemporary church is that we see ourselves in terms that have been defined by the world. And so when we talk about competition, the competition is not just with the church down the street. The competition is also with uh, the, the culture, um, trying to meet man's quote-unquote felt needs, which we've maybe has become a little bit outdated, but the, but the issue is still the same. Man still wants something uh, to feel better about today. 
We need something to get by, something to get us through the night. And so whether it's motivational speaking, whether it's you know, Oprah, people are trying to fill a void. And here's the problem with the church. They are attempting to fill the same void and not identifying the real problem. The real problem, the primary problem, is man needs to be reconciled to his creator. It is, and we've said it in, in some, some of our recent programs, our primary problem is not stress. It's not dysfunctional families. Our primary problem is not, I'm not maximizing my earning potential. The, my primary problem is I'm a rebel against my creator. Now, if what you want to do is, is deal with, with the effects of living in a fallen world, then you can pick that up on, in psychology and in various ways. And that's the problem. The church is trying to fill a niche that she hasn't been called to fill. We're not, we're not called to make people feel better about themselves in their misery outside of Christ. Right. The reformers, in fact, said that the whole focus <clears throat> of the medieval church was on improving the old Adam. And, yeah. that's, and that's why the we culture. need the law and the gospel. <laughs> Christ doesn't come to improve our lives. He comes to end our lives so that we can have real life in him. But just take the statement you just made. Christ didn't come to improve our lives. That's the message that's going to dominate most churches on Sunday. Here are some top-selling book titles according to the Christian Booksellers Association for 2008. Become a Better You. The Seven Pillars of Health. The Total Money Makeover. Breaking Free Day by Day. The Power of a Praying Wife. How's that yeah. spelled? Rod, Rod, <laughs> Rod, 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 Rod Ghost wrote that one. <laughs> and this is, a, this is a real title that Scott wrote. Slightly Bad Girls of the Bible. That's, a, that's an actual title of a best-selling CBA book, Slightly Bad Girls oh, of the Bible. That's the problem. Yeah. There it is. I'm just not getting paid, so, I mean, it's time to cash in, baby. I'm going I'm to make a million and then repudiate the whole thing. Sure. Well, you know, but keep if, the million. Oh, absolutely. If you're in this the, is America. If you're in the business of life transformation, you don't need preaching, sacrament, no. catechesis, elders, deacons. You need a good website. Yeah. And so Barna actually goes on to say in another book that there is another niche market now emerging called oh, the revolutionaries. Quote, millions of believers who have moved beyond the established church and chosen to be the church instead. Since being the church is a matter of individual choice and effort, all people uh, need our resources for their own personal and social transformation. Based on our research, Barna relates, I have projected that by the year 2010, 10 to 20% of Americans will derive all of their spiritual input and output through the Internet. Now, who needs the church when you have an iPod? And, and he go, goes on to argue exactly why. Basically, the, 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 the business that we're in is life transformation. You can get that just as easily on the Internet. He says, here's a, a direct quote. He says, uh, we don't need a church but we do need a good life coach. Wow. And, of course, Joel wow. Osteen yeah. describes himself. He defines himself as a life coach. As, as a life coach. And as, as you have noted several times recently, um, you know, Bill Hybels, having repented, is, is uh, redoubling his efforts to do more of the same, help people to become self-feeders. 
yeah. so that they can improve the themselves. The goal is to become a self-feeder. Yeah. yeah, this this week, uh, Shane Rosenthal uh, interviewed the the uh, former executive pastor at Willow Creek, uh, and uh, so uh, we'll you'll be hearing that on a on a future program that interview as he's discussing this recent report that Willow just came out with. Really remarkable when they say we were stunned by the results of the research that said that the people who were most involved at Willow Creek. Uh, and are most mature in their Christian faith are the most dissatisfied with their growth in the Christian life and the teaching and worship they're getting at, mm. the, at the church here. And their takeaway was not that they were not feeding the sheep, but that as people mature in the Christian life, they no longer need the church and should become, in their own words, self-feeders. Wow. And the church's goal then is to just provide ministry opportunities, a platform for service. I swear, the, the businessman is, is an abstractor. And the further and further it gets away from the body of Christ, the blood of Christ, the cross of Christ, and becomes an abstract principle, the, the further off we get. Because it, there's a proper place for counting. Sure. There's a yeah. proper place Absolutely. for measuring, thing, measuring success in terms of statistics. That place is not the church. Well, one of our recent programs, Shane did uh, a series of interviews with, with uh, pastors at, at a pastor's conference. And the question was about you know, the importance of doctrine and, and apologetics and theology. And many of the pastors um, said they stayed away from uh, apologetics to deal more with life issues. This is, this is it. This, that is what they're saying in essence is they have jettisoned the doctrinal claims of Scripture as, as being our primary purpose in order to transform the old Adam. And that's what they don't see. There, there's a connection there that, that somehow they're not seeing that by you focusing on this person as they are as if their biggest problem is external then you are doing them good and just because that's what people want are we really surprised that fallen humanity has a wrong concept of what's wrong with them yeah right i mean th this all goes i mean this this is old business that goes back to bob Schuler, who went out knocked on doors figured what out would what would get you up in the morning what people wanted <clears throat> and you know uh, Rick Warren's done that in Saddleback. Bill Hybels has done it. I mean, this is just good old-fashioned American religion. And really what people want uh, to a large degree is Mormonism. I mean, uh, in a lot of ways, that's the quintessential re American religion. We want a religion come to us from an angel named Moron where <laughs> a guy stuck, sticks, multiple his wives. <laughs> sticks, his head, sticks his face in a hat, reads you know, magic with magic glasses, reads uh, magic plates that no one else can see, and uh, tells you how to be a good person. That's the, it's yeah. American Islam, it's the quintessential American religion. And God says in Deuteronomy 7, 17, if you say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I disp dispossess them? Uh, you shall not be afraid of them, but you shall remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt. Um, that's the that's the stance that the church, not, not as a national people now, but as a as the the uh, location 
of the ministry of word, you know, gospel, and sacrament, and discipline. We are, we are those who've been brought out of Egypt, out of slavery, and we're not to be saying, boy, how can we be like the Canaanites? How can we be like the Mormons? How can we compete with these people? Uh, we are uh, the adopted children of Yahweh Elohim who delivered us uh, sovereignly, graciously through the Red Sea. Well, that brings us to this question. You know, Madison Avenue has its own way of carving up humanity according to its niche markets. And uh, that's one story. That's one drama of this passing evil age, as Paul would put it. But there's another story that carves the human race up in a different demographic way that doesn't divide between male and female, slave or free, Jew or Gentile, haves and rich have and poor, yeah. uh, but says all are one in Christ. So in Adam and in Christ, not boomer, buster, uh, revolutionary, millennial. Those, those are the categories. Don't you, don't you think a lot of this, not all of it, I mean, I know there are all kinds of uh, other factors, but a lot of it is that underneath all of this is the inherent success of Arminian theology in the American, uh, in American religious history where two things became very prominent. One, voluntarism, that is, your will is sovereign. You choose, and God reacts. Is, yeah. God reacts. <clears throat> and then the other is individualism. And you put those two things together, yeah. and Jackson Lears, who's a Marxist, said that Arminianism created the moral climate for the triumph of consumerism in the culture. But you know, if that's the case... Well, there's another factor, and you've pointed it out, and that is um, I had the argument with Michael. He asked me what I thought was the endemic American religion, and I said Mormonism. He said, I think oh. you're wrong. And I said, what do you think it is? He said, I, said, I think it's Gnosticism. And that's a factor in this. And Mormonism is a part of that Gnostic. Uh, I mean, uh, Harold Bloom says, he says, yep. there's no difference yeah. between uh, Mormons Baptist. and Southern Baptists in America. He says yeah. it's all the same religion, basically. And, and it's, he, he celebrated it as Gnosticism. And we can't a, lay this all at the feet either of Arminianism. Yeah. Because as uh, Hatch points out, there's an organic connection between the first Great Awakening. I mean, George Whitfield is the first... Real Mark, as you know, as you know, uh, as Stout argued some years ago, George Whitfield is the first great religious marketing genius. Media guy. He was the first media guy. Created and he, the religion page. He sent, you know, advanced people, and he wasn't above stirring up a little excitement, creating a little artificial controversy, getting some press. Um, you know, to this day, if if I write something on the internet that's a little bit critical of someone, you can see the hits go right through the roof. If I'm simply expositing the gospel. Nobody cares about that. I mean, you can yeah. see the numbers climb. Uh, so, so he, you know, we, our people, the, you know, well, not only our folks Whitfield, would identify with Whitfield. But not only Whitfield. During the first Great Awakening, the preachers, the, the tenets, and, and oh, uh, others, because of their style and their presentation, their their powerful presentation, their emotional appeal, that became the standard by which uh, many of the students uh, that that attended some of those revival meetings they measured the spirituality of others by, by, by the, the pathos, as it were, of, of these uh, revival speakers. If Arminianism does play some uh, role in this theologically, creating the climate at least for it, 
then shouldn't we go back to our resources uh, and, and say, first of all, election, doctrine of unconditional election tells us, as Jesus said to his disciples, you did not choose me, I chose you and appointed you to go out and bear fruit that would last, which means that I belong to a community that I didn't choose for myself, but one that consists of people whom God chose for my family as well as his. That kills both the voluntarism, in other words, just the obsession of Americans with choice, that's part and parcel of consumerism, and the individualism that says, basically, uh, you've got to sell this to me because uh, really it, it's about what makes me fulfilled, mm -hmm. my personal transformation. And Christ is saying, no, I'm, I'm creating a community around myself I'm choosing you, and I am joining you to this community, yeah. which is why baptism, for example, is not a, 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 an act, a, a human act of, uh, of, of choice. It is God's commitment, God's grace. It is God saying something that then is fulfilled in time through faith. Now, this isn't that we don't have a responsibility to believe. Sure or a responsibility to raise our kids in the fear and knowledge of the Lord, but it means that his promise comes first, and he's creating a community that's different from any community in the world. Well, and, and that, that is, again, the major conflict, uh, the two dramas, us trying to draft God into our drama and, and, and actually assuming that our greedy little desires is what he desires. God wants the best for your life, and we assume that means a house in a suburb and, you know, two and a half kids and, and, a, and a minivan. Well, no, I guess it's not. What's half a kid? I, I don't know yet, but... Um... That's a statistic. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's what happens with marketing. You end up with half a kid. But, but that's what we assume. We assume that that's because that's the American dream, that that's God's will, and what he wants is for you to have the best you now. Oh, someone has already said that. But... <laughs> The, the best you now, as you are, you are wretched without a savior. You, you that you have to die. Exactly. So therefore, the difference is my drama says I want more stuff. God's drama says you need to be reconciled to me. My drama centers on me trying to find the most help I can to get the stuff that I want, and God's drama is about what he has done to reconcile me to himself. In his book, uh, Shopping Malls and Other Sacred Spaces, John Paul uh, has this to say. First of all, he helpfully tells us a little bit about the history of the rise of the prosperity gospel in America. Russell H. Conwell's Acres of Diamonds. Acres and acres of yes. diamonds. And uh, this, this was in the late 19th century. Conwell, he says, who eventually founded Temple University in Philadelphia, was a Civil War veteran and lawyer who became a Baptist preacher. And as, sorry, Ken. And, and, as, <laughs> and as such, openly promulgated a gospel of wealth. The message was simple and has been repeated in paler forms by many Christian ministers over the years. Quote, I say that you ought to get rich, and it's your duty to get rich. To make money honestly is to preach the gospel. Let me say here clearly, and say it briefly, 98 out of 100 of the rich men in America are honest. That's why they're rich. Money is power, and you ought to be reasonably ambitious to have it. You ought because you can do more good with it than you could without it. 
Money printed your Bible, money builds your churches, money sends your missionaries, and money pays your preachers. And you would not have many of them either if you did not pay them. I say then, you ought to have money. It's your Christian and godly duty to do so. And then uh, the writer says, uh, 16th century Protestants trusted in grace to get them to heaven. Modern capitalists trust the market to get them prosperity. Wow. The logic is an identical future-oriented hope. They both have an eschatology. Here, a simple examination of the practices on Wall Street, yet another sacred place in the religion of the market, can demonstrate how this system works. Each day on Wall Street begins with a simple liturgy. A presider or group of special people stands at a podium and rings a bell. For the next eight hours, exchanges occur that determine the well-being of the market for that day that bring either hope or despair to the participants in the ritual. This experience of a bull market, heaven, or a bear market, hell, is indistinguishable in effect from revivalist experiences of being saved or damned. Wow. We just did an interview today with a person who's writing a book on uh, multi-level marketing and how many multi-level marketing organizations and scams that have especially uh, uh, tr focused on attracting Christian women uh, have uh, left disillusionment in their wake and how many of them, she says, according to her research, uh, claim some kind of Christian veneer wrapped in the prosperity gospel. Yeah. And you really see, that, you know, when they leave disillusioned, uh, she says they're often told, well, you're out of the will of God. And she God. says you go to some of their meetings, Mary Kay in particular, you go to some of their meetings, and she it says... It is like a revival. She said it's yeah. just like a revival <clears throat> meeting. Yeah. It, it's the, the most intense religious experience I ever saw. And I came to faith in a, in a sweaty revivalist Southern Baptist congregation. Uh, the most intense religious experience I ever saw was a multi-level marketing introductory yeah. meeting. Yeah. I was terrified. And I'd seen lots Did of altar calls. No, no, no. <laughs> I, I, I knew it wasn't, wasn't for me. You know, in the spirit of Thomas Aquinas, relative to what you were just reading, I would say, you know, on the, but on the contrary. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Yeah. Hmm. See, I mean, doesn't, doesn't all of this say that we not only have a message that counters the world, you know, a script, but we also have the props and the actions that the world really does have its words and sacraments. It has yeah. its rituals, and they're not innocent. And the church has its words yeah. and sacraments, has its rituals that bear the message. You can't separate the message from the medium. And the, the liturgy, the discipline, all of the life of the church opposes this consumerist mindset so how can we say well we're going to adopt we're going to if you ask me the questions the doctrinal questions on the exam mm -hmm. I'm gonna answer exactly right down the line on the creeds and confessions but in our actual practice mm -hmm. yeah. we're indistinguishable from the market-driven approach of those who don't believe in election and grace and justification, and the significance of baptism as death and life, 
and uh, Christ coming to us through, the, through, through preaching. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. They're just going to be rival, not only rival stories, but rival rituals in all of this. Well, you know, it's, it's bad enough when modern man uh, buys at the marketplace all of these things, all of these products that are being um, marketed as if that's the solution to their greatest problem. It's bad enough when, when they, they buy it and, and come away empty, but it's even worse when they are being sold the same thing through the church, yes. thinking yeah. they're holding to something that is substantial and something that is eternal, only to find out it's the same thing they were getting off of late-night motivational television. I think there are two things that have to happen. One, congregations, because congregations get what, that for which they ask. Ministers tend to do the things for which they get rewarded. So congregations need to quit insisting implicitly that their ministers become salesmen. Yep. And, and, and support their ministers yes. in their resistance Since, to that. And, and you ministers need to you know, relearn every day yeah. you know, what happened to me when I was ordained. What, to what was I ordained? I was ordained to gospel ministry, to preaching the law and the gospel, administering the sacraments, and, and, and discipline, and you have to die to success yes. every day. Yeah. If the Lord yes. wants your church to be 50 people, it's his church. It's not your church. Those he, 50 are just as important as any of the others that are in the kingdom. And he it, does want the church to grow, but sure. throughout the book of Acts, it says that the church of, uh, of Christ grew and spread as the word spread. What right. does it profit a man if he gains a multi-campus ministry and loses his soul? Yeah, and, and see, that's, that's, that's the, the danger that uh, ministers, Christian ministers, need to hear this over and over again. I, I think in terms of uh, the movie um, uh, Boiler Room, where, uh, did you see that, Giovanni Ribisi and, and uh, Vin Diesel? And, and you had these guys who were all trying to be Gordon Gecko from the movie Wall Street, and right. they had memorized uh, lines from, from the movie and actually were able to just kind of recite it. But that was their model. That's what they wanted. And, and I think many of, the, uh, many of our, our pastors have, have the same sort of Gordon Gecko model, whoever it is on Christian television or whatever, that they're a- attempting to emulate. And, and they're too much of, of themselves have been invested in trying to, to be like these guys, be like these conference speakers and have these large churches. And they've lost sight of the fact that, no, you've not been called to be successful. If you want to be successful in those terms and, and according to those standards, then you need to get in another business. But Rick Warren, and I'm not saying this in a, in a pejorative sense, but he's still not our model. Um, not even an R.C. Sproul, is, it's, he's a great teacher. He's not our model. It doesn't mean we can't learn from them, but our goal is not to emulate what someone else has done somewhere else, but it is to preach the gospel. Yeah. And it's when, the content. That's the content. And, and, and I think it's very important to say once in a while to the laity, if you have a pastor who does this, thank him. Yes. Yeah. Because he's up against all sorts of forces to get him to shift to something else. Oh, we, we, Express your thanks to him once in a mm-hmm. while. We get emails, and you guys get a lot more than I do, but I get these heart-rending emails. You know, they say, well, I read the stuff you're writing. I hear the stuff you're saying. So we went looking for that kind of church. Mm. Uh, I just got one recently. And it was, I mean, it really it brought tears to my eyes. Here was a woman 
who was finally doing, you know, taking seriously the Reformation and, and all these things that we talk about. And she walked away from her longtime evangelical congregation, and she went looking for a Reformation church. And, and she, she actually went a considerable distance. And she went into Reformation church after Reformation church, and all she found were cheap imitations yep. of the thing she left behind. And, and I, I didn't know what to tell her. What, yeah. uh, you know, what, you know, so what happens if we have a, a, a modern Reformation and, yeah. no, and there's no place to go? But what's one of the first questions that people will raise to you when they find out you're a pastor? Oh, how large is your church? Yeah. Buildings, bodies, and budgets. Yes. I think, I think anybody who, who, says, who asks about those things at, at our ecclesiastical meetings should be tasered. <laughs> right? I think just a sort of a Pavlovian thing. Maybe not the whole thing. Maybe just 10 volts. But just a little negative reinforcement. Right? Sort of like the, the swearing jar. You say a nasty word, you put a quarter in the jar. Just some sort of negative Pavlovian reinforcement. It's always interesting to get a, a little insight into Scott's uh, upbringing. <laughs> always, yes. yes. Oh, t- tasering would have, been, would have been pleasant compared to the way I was raised. Did it help? <laughs> no. <laughs> you well, know, I learned some things not to do. You know, at the time of uh, the Reformation also, uh, there was... Uh, salesmanship in the air. John Tetzel was commissioned by the Pope to uh, go throughout Germany and collect money for the building project of uh, St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. And uh, as he did that, he, uh, uh, the, the, the little choir of children who followed him used to sing, uh, as the coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. Of course, other kids uh, doubtless future Lutherans, uh, <laughs> used to uh, make a parody of it uh, when the uh, coin rings in the picture, the Pope gets all the richer. But it, it, <clears throat> that's the first thing that got Luther's attention. It's not for sale. God is not for sale. And I want to close with a passage from Isaiah 55, beginning at verse 1. Bye. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen so that you may live. I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. And that David, when he came, said, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened down, and I will give you rest. And that is true as well tonight. All of you who've been sold a bill of goods, all of you who've tried really hard to follow all the programs that have been sold to you, Jesus Christ still stands and says, Come, without money, without price, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Look forward to being with you again next time on The White Horse Inn. The White Horse Inn is a listener-supported broadcast. To find out how to support our efforts, give us a call at 1-800-890-7556. 
That's 1-800-890-7556. You can also check out the support tab of our website at whitehorseinn.org. That's whitehorseinn.org.